You're listening to Episode 7, Philoli. You're listening to This Outside Life with Laurie Kaler. Here we explore the lives of outsiders, those people who work or play in the great outdoors. At This Outside Life, we are committed to curing nature blindness and helping you step outside and step into wonder. Whether you like to enjoy nature by backpacking or from your back porch, there's something here for you to learn and appreciate about this amazing world we all share. Come with me and let's step outside and step into wonder in this outside life. If you love gardening and if you want insider tips on great catalogs, sources for bulbs, and essential gear, stay tuned. Today, we are talking with Jim Salyards, the head of horticulture at the famous Filoli Estate. If you've seen the TV show Dynasty, or if you've seen Warren Beatty in Heaven Can Wait, you've seen Filoli. Or maybe you've seen the Estee Lauder perfume commercial for their perfume Beautiful. That too was filmed at Filoli. It's a beautiful home and famous formal gardens on 16 acres that has been featured in these shows. San Franciscan William Bourne built the estate in 1915, and he said at the time, it might be an interesting place a hundred years from now. How right he was. It is considered one of the finest remaining country estates from the beginning of the 20th century. The second family to live there, the Roths, understood the value and beauty of these extensive, historic, English Renaissance-style gardens. They refused to sell the property because a buyer said he would not allow the public to see it. So, in 1970, the Roth family donated Filoli to the National Trust for Historic Preservation, which means that you and I can tour the gardens and the home of this magnificent estate. As we'll hear in this interview with the head of horticulture, Jim Salyards, Filoli is more than just a pretty garden. They host many events with jazz, formal teas, plein air painting, children's programs, and classes on gardening and floral arranging, and their famous Christmas market. If you've always wondered, what does a head gardener or the head of horticulture actually do at one of these big estates, you will really enjoy this interview. Before my interview with Jim, I walked around the Filoli estate just to watch how people interacted with the gardens. There were people from all over the world speaking different languages. There were babies, and you'll hear the burbling fountains. It's a really restful, magical, amazing place to go. And if you visit their cafe, you'll meet their resident peacock who walks around. I sat down with Jim in the middle of an orchard. This is off-limits to most of the visitors to Filoli, but it contains ancient and odd antique varieties of apple trees, pear trees, apricots, all sorts of fruit. There were no chairs, so we just ended up sitting on the ground talking with each other, and it was delightful. So, I'm with Jim Selliers, and your official title is... Horticulture at Filoli Gardens. Okay. And that must be a really hard job to get. Like, is there a lot of competition for this or what? Well, it's something I've been able to move up into. I started here 23 years ago and um, was originally, I started as a section gardener 
and then five years later I became greenhouse manager and then um, four years ago the previous director of horticulture left and I moved into that role. So somebody has to die or leave for you to... (laughs) The person before me was in the role for 33 years, I think. Oh, wow. (laughs) Or I'd been at Filoli that long. And so we're sitting in the midst of an old orchard. How old is this orchard? The Gentleman's Orchard is what it's called because it's a collection of fruits. It was begun um, probably in the late teens, early 20s, um, when the estate was first built. So this estate was built when? 1915 to 17. Um, they they broke. Was this in reaction after the Great Earthquake? A like, let's the, get yeah, out of San Francisco. Yeah. But also, William and Agnes Bourne wanted had been talking for years about building a country place estate. He had gone to Cambridge, uh, and just loved yeah. the the country outside the cities, and wanted to build something like that. So they had actually been taking notes and writing down things that they wanted as part of their country place estate. All right. So what do we have here in this orchard? We have a collection of about 550 fruit trees, mostly apples, um, next most pears, and then some stone fruit, some persimmons, um, some medlars, which are an apple relative that looks like a brown rose hip um, that are eaten. They kind of have to go soft like a persimmon does before you can eat them in December, huh. January. But it's we're preserving this original landscape feature, but also um, within it uh, many, many different heirloom varieties of, of fruit trees. Oh, cool. Okay, so what do you like best about your job? I love um, that I can be at this you know this this place in the peninsula that is a total escape from the rest of the city that's around us i mean you would never know when you're here that there are um developments and things um within five ten minutes away this garden is is incredible i mean i've i I haven't seen all the gardens in the world but of the ones i've seen it, it definitely stands out in its scale it's incredibly beautifully designed but it's it's at an approachable scale for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you go to Versailles or some of the other grand gardens in Europe, um, you just can't wrap your head around all that area. But yeah, they're just massive. Yeah. So how big is this place? The formal gardens are 16 acres, and it's divided oh. up into garden rooms. So when you're within each of the garden spaces, um, you can kind of take it all in, and then you move to the next room, um, kind of like you're going through a house. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. And what's your biggest struggle here? What do you like the least? Uh, I mean, varmints um, are tough. <laughs> What's the most troublesome varmint? Probably gophers. Gophers within the garden, um, but we do a pretty good job of getting them. If if a gate's left open, the deer come in, and, and they can just wreak havoc. What about the wild turkeys? I see them everywhere. Are they okay, or is it just the poop? No, they're, they're becoming more and more of a problem. Last year, they came in, and we had done a late summer planting of ornamental cabbage, and birds love brassicas, and so they destroyed that bed. So it's, it's definitely becoming more of, an, more of an issue. And what about rabbits? Uh, some rabbits, but not too bad. We have enough predators that usually pick those off. We have foxes okay. and coyotes. Uh, yeah, and you can't use poison, so what do you do? Yeah. We'll, we'll usually live trap and relocate. Mm. Um, squirrels are also, they're actually probably the one that, that bother me the most because they, they'll go after the fruit in the garden and they just crack open a pear and take the seeds out and then drop the fruit. I mean, oh, like, serious? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they, they start in June um, eating in, immature fruit and just eating the seeds, um, which is maddening. Ah, okay. <laughs> but I know everyone battles squirrels. They're... So what skills does someone need to run a big garden like this? 
I mean, because you can be a great gardener, but you also have to manage people, right? Yeah. I mean, I've learned a lot along the way. Um, I think that early on, when Philo became a public garden, it was set up in such a way that it was well organized in terms of the teams who... Um, so for each of the garden sections, there's a team of two to three people who are responsible for everything. So, so they're always honing those skills. And our greatest feeder program for horticulturists is we have an internship program. And so we have interns who do 10-week or six-month programs, rotate through the entire garden, pick up the skills, and then they're they're the ones who are the best that we can bring on. Um, people usually, we, we like to hire people who have degrees in horticulture or botany or plant science or ecology, just have a, a connection to the living world. Mm-hmm. And and then it's just honing those skills as they, they start, um, as they go through the entire calendar um, you know, mm. the winter pruning to the the spring beds and the, the planting and the lawn care and, um, you know, bigger tree work and, and all that it takes to... So what are some good horticulture schools in the nation? Like, where do you like to see people from, like Davis? or Cal- For California, Davis and Cal Poly um, mm-hmm. have really good programs. Some of the other UCs have some horticulture. We also bring people in from the local um, junior colleges. Um, Foothill College oh, um, down okay. the road has a good hort program. San, San Francisco City College has a, a good hort program. What about the East we we get interns from all over the country, Rutgers, um, Ohio State. Of course, I'm blanking. North Carolina State has a really yeah. good horticulture program. That's um, one of the prettiest. Oh yeah, yeah. that's my alma mater. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had a woman last um, summer from um, University of Wisconsin who okay. came and interned. Yeah. But Those are committed gardens because they're under ice and yeah. snow most year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Absolutely. University of Florida mm-hmm. um, are all good. So this is part of a national trust for historic places. So you've got some places in the U.S. that are just big, gorgeous gardens, and then you have this gorgeous garden, but it's also part of a historic, you know, are there different rules for how you treat those gardens or what you can do? Yeah. I mean, a lot of, of the public gardens around the country are either um, their own nonprofit entity or they're connected to, they can be connected to a university or uh, a, a city park system. But Filoli is, Mrs. Roth decided pretty early on that she wanted the gardens preserved and um, struggled with selling it and having it subdivided. So eventually the family gave it to the National Trust. And their their role is to, they look at properties that they take on, and they only have 27, I believe, that represent different eras in American um, architecture, history, gardens. Filoli is the one that has the the most impressive gardens in the National Trust. Oh, from the whole USA? From, from the whole, yeah, of those 27 oh. properties. Lily has the one that's known best for its gardens. And because of that, it's it's one of the most successful because there's always something going on in a garden. If you just have a historic house, mm. you go in and see the collection and then, you know, you're done for five years. Whereas mm. a garden is always evolving and growing and having different things in bloom. So people will want to come back uh, multiple times. Yeah, I'm impressed because Filoli has all, like, you've got your Harvest Festival in the spring you've got stuff right now you've got glass sculptures out there like Dale Tahuli sort of thing and I'm just amazed you've always got something going and classes like I really wanted to take your making lip balm with lavender class and all that is is that really helped you guys get uh, much yeah that I think our 
education classes and events are um, how a lot of people first come here. They hear about it from friends, see advertisements for it. Um, one of the things that we started last year was a new private um, rental program. So we have people who have celebrations of life or a special birthday dinner um, in the garden or in the, the garden house or in the mansion. And uh, But then we also have had corporations who have um, retreats here. Um, and those have been exciting because you have, you know, tech company, a bunch of people who work yeah. 20 hours a day. They don't get out much. Um, they don't even know what's, you know, beyond their neighborhood. But they come here and see this place, and they just think that they're just going to a place to have a retreat, They, you know, and play some games and stuff like that. But then they get out here, and they're just, I mean, their eyes get big as dinner plates, and they just can't believe that this is here, where it is. You know, it's between San Francisco and San Jose. It's just in their backyard. And, and um, so a lot of those people have come back with their families or become members some have become yeah. volunteers so it's been a really good way to um, bring in new audiences and that is also um i think we're we're touching other cultures within the bay area more through that through some of our partnerships and advertising that we're doing um so it's great just seeing lots more families lots more diverse families just uh really appreciating yeah. the work that we do so who influenced you to go into horticulture i um took a bit of a circuitous route. I mean, I growing up, my folks um, were um, East Coast, New England natives, and um, had come out here ultimately for my dad to work. And um, so I grew up in the South Bay and then up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. But in the, when we were in the South Bay, this is in the you know early 70s before the buildup. And so there were still orchards and things like mm-hmm. that. And my parents used to take my brother and I and later my sister out to catch butterflies and um, there was a dairy near us that we, we would visit and my dad liked to fly uh, model airplanes and rockets so we'd be out in the, the fields out um, where Great America Parkway is now and um, so that was kind of you know I had an appreciation for animals in the natural world starting then by the time I was getting toward finishing up high school I was thinking uh, maybe I wanted to be a vet or a doctor but in high school, my sophomore year, I took a accelerated biology class, and my teacher was a, he had an appreciation for botany, and so one of the components of the class was going out in the woods, and this is up in, in Felton in the Santa Cruz Mountains, going out in the woods and learning the trees and things like that, and okay. I ended up doing a project on the trees in, in the um, San Lorenzo Valley up near Santa Cruz. So... Fast forward my second year of college, I took a a biology class, um, had a great teacher who was from the botany department. He taught the intro to botany course. I could take that for my general biology degree and um, took that and just realized I want to do plants. Later found horticulture, um, later because of a plant propagation class, did an internship at the Arboretum at UC Davis, Uh and that's when I... um, fell in love with the public art world and wanted to be a part of that and, and um, on the heels of then I did a master's degree there and then um, came to follow right out of school huh. I've been here ever since <laughs> so it's interesting it's a, it was significant that your parents took you out and about and did that yeah yeah no that was that was huge I uh, I, I mean, I think it was there was enough natural spaces around them, around us at that time, that we could. But um, you know, even a park, you know, bringing kids out to a park and oh. um, just look, being on grass and looking up in the trees and observing the squirrels and the birds, um, you know, that's everywhere, even in the thickest cities. And uh, I, I think that that, in, for some people, just really starts a, an appreciation for nature yeah. um, that hopefully continues. Yeah. So, do you have a favorite plant here that you 
I love um, I love the trees. I mean, I love that's that's one of the things. Uh, earlier this year, I visited some of the the gardens in um, the Netherlands in Belgium, and uh, they were too. It was in the spring to see the tulips, but um, the nothing for me is more impressive than an, you know a hundred plus year old tree I and mean, they just add such character to a garden and we have our camper down elm which is uh it's a grafted tree that um in the summer is just this this um, umbrella of mm. big green leaves but in the winter when it's um completely deciduous um it's covered with mosses and then when the rains hit it it, it just gets it's just like this big beautiful green um almost eerie looking creature um but it's 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 beautiful and then um has fall color and then spring flowers and it's um, so it's called a camperdown camper elm? elm yeah in the midwest where i grew up they, we had dutch elms everywhere and like it was like a cathedral going down the streets and then you know all summer long all you hear is chainsaws after they had to be all taken right. out so yeah, so did uh were they able ever able to recreate the genetic code for that and bring them back yeah, or I mean, what's there are a lot of people who are doing work on creating Dutch elm disease resistant elm yeah. trees and there there are some out there and and actually the Camperdown elm is um, a scotch elm which is um, susceptible to Dutch elm yeah. um, but we're fortunately in an area that doesn't have many yeah. elm trees and so it hasn't hit us. And then what about the chestnut? You know that got decimated out east. It, what isn't there? The um, chestnut blight they're working on um, coming up with. They've done some work with the few American chestnuts that are left breeding them with some of the Asian chestnuts to build in resistance. Um, and uh, so they've, they've had some success and then, then back cross so that you end up having um, a lot more of the American chestnut because the American chestnut is, is supposedly the sweetest of the chestnuts. It's the biggest and the sweetest. The Asian ones are good and, um, and the European one also are good, but they're not, there's nothing like the American chestnut. And it was such an incredible, I mean, there were, there were billions of them and the, the wood is hard and the trees are tall and straight. So they're, they're working on that. There are, um, Within the natural range of the where chestnuts were in the east coast and the Midwest, there are um, groups who are working toward um, bringing back chestnuts. Um, mm-hmm. But I actually got to see my first American chestnut in the woods of North Carolina last fall, and uh, it had just what happens is the chestnut blight kills the top of the tree, but the roots survive. So they'll resprout and get a certain height, and then the the blight comes through and, and knocks it down, and then it regrows. But they'll occasionally produce fruit, and so I was able to find a nut on a tree and just eat it raw there. You can eat them raw, and it was super sweet. It was really exciting. Oh, that's cool. I didn't realize that it hit the crown and not the root. Yeah. So that, that sort of gives hope, then, yeah. that you can right. grab it. Huh. Okay, so National Trust Places, do you have to grow the same plants that were here? Like if you've got a National Trust right. Place that's 200 years old, do they want to keep the garden the way it was 200 years ago, or are you free kind of to do what you want? They're, because Philoli um, spanned the, the era of two families, that gives us a little bit more license to adapt um, the garden as it changes. You know, one of the biggest struggles is that there weren't many um, native trees around when the garden was built and then we have all these huge oak trees that have grown up in the last hundred years and so we have a lot more shade and then also these oaks come down so our philosophy is as best we can um, in terms of the woody plants we try to um, propagate from the original plants and, and use that same historic same genetic material but we can also build on collections that we have if an oak tree comes down and a camellia is now in too much sun and doesn't survive, we can bring in a magnolia, which is another collection. The National Trust is is most concerned that we 
keep the existing um, design of the garden. Mm. Um, but beyond that, the plants within um, the the perennial border or the annual beds can be can be our choice. Um, but we we do try to keep it keep things um, within what this place would have looked like as best we can during the time that the yeah. families were here. So, what do you think is the prettiest time to visit Falaoli? Everyone comes in spring. We do uh, an incredible ball program. Um, we do about 20,000 tulips in the beds and then another 40,000 in containers. So from mid-February through mid, mid-April, there will be bulbs that are in bloom. And, uh, and you know, there's, there are wisteria and the roses and the peonies and the tree peonies yeah. and all the things that people want to come see during the spring um, are, are beautiful. But... Um, so spring yeah. for sure, but there are enough other woody plants that bloom in summer and fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do a really good summer annual display program too. So um, right now the, the garden is just full of color with begonias and zinnias and yeah. salvias. and Like normally I don't like orange and purple, but what you got going out there is just gorgeous with the zinnias and the salvias and all that. That was, that was it's, impressive. It's gonna, it's gonna, I'm going to mix it up next year. Um, okay. I've already been planning what I'm going to do for the summer beds. And? Um, purple with chartreuse and silver. Ooh, like Artemisia and stuff? Yeah. Artemisia, some of the woolly um, sages that are just for yeah. foliage. I'm not sure. The chartreuse things I have going so far are there is a, a lime-colored zinnia, um, so maybe some of that. Um, oh, I've seen that. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. And uh, some of the um, amaranths, the, the love lies bleeding amaranths, come oh, yeah. in kind of an emerald, um, yellowy-green. Purples, I'm probably going to actually keep back some of the salvias that we have this year because mm-hmm. they're, they're doing so well. Um, purple's easy, but yeah, just um, getting in some of the silvers and the whites, or the chartreuses, um, what I'm working on. So do you have to work with a, a board or a group of people and sort of decide on the schemes, or do you just get to say, hey, I'm into pink and purple this year or whatever? I get to do it all myself, yeah. Um, nice. I know. It's... Um, I learned from my, my predecessor and, um, you know, people ask, do the, the gardeners get to design their own sections? Um, but someone has to oversee and um, create a breadth to the display. And if you have everybody choosing their, their own things, it's just a lot of back and forth. And it's just easier and I think um, more holistic if one person decides on everything. What books do you recommend for the home gardener who's like, I really want to up my game? What books should I? You know, I don't. There's so much on the internet these days. You know, I, I'm a, I'm a plant person, and I love the different groups of plants. So I tend to go, you know, have a passion for salvias or clematis or wisteria. Um, all the offerings that Timber Press has um, are. Oh, the publisher, Timber yeah, Press, yeah, in Oregon and Portland. Um, they just uh, those are the best books in terms of design and books that are about a unique plant variety or species Mm. um they're the best but in terms of general horticulture you know that you still can't beat the sunset western garden book i mean it really does have a lot of um fantastic info and um i don't know if they're doing so much of their single plant series on the horticulture the growing of the different plants but um even those old books that you can find at garage sales and um, book sales have a lot of um, great information but there, you know, Timber Press does have some good horticulture books. I just, I'm not referring to them as much these days. Um, I look things up. Um, Do you have favorite sources for, like, my sister loves the uh, Swan Island dahlias? And I you have place an order today. You <laughs> <Island>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Um, Swan Island is, I mean, for Dahlia's, they're, they're incredible. I've been um, spending more time in the Midwest, actually, in Chicago. I have a, a, a good friend who's there, and, and, and then my family's now um, gone back to New England. And it's incredible how Californians take gardens for granted. You know, they don't, they don't have to bear a winter and just that incredible excitement that's built around spring and summer. We don't and the preparation that. for winter. I watched my mother, you know, hack back the rose bushes. Then she put these styrofoam cones over them, and then a couple of bricks, and then straw around them. I mean, it was a, it was like preparing for the winter. Process, yeah. yeah, yeah. And we just, just let it go and grow what barely needs any water or needs a little pruning and tending, but um, is easy. So, Where do you order your tulips from? So we, I work with a, a Dutch broker. Um, oh, so we get all of ours. Um, so from, you don't bother with the catalogs. We you don't, <laughs> but I will usually order some from Brent and Becky's bulbs every year. Um, I think that they're the best. They're, Brent Heath's grandfather um, started in the bulb business, so they have these longtime family connections mm. with the growers, and and so they get the best stuff. And, and we, we struggle with, um, you know, we get a better price because we're buying larger quantities, and, and they're working with the growers, but there's often substitutions um, and disease issues and... Uh, uh, not often diseases, but um, sometimes it's substitutions and diseases. And so you wind up with not getting exactly what you want. And the way our displays are staggered, it's important that everything come yeah. when it's planned. Otherwise, um, you're doubling up in some area and, and another area doesn't have anything. And um, so this, the stuff that Brent and Becky's has is, yeah. is incredible. Do you have a favorite tulip? Oh, yeah. Um, I I do love the oranges. I love Dordogne. Um, I love Angelique, which is one of the peony, yeah, pink flowered one. ones. I mean, there's always all these great ones. I got to go to Kuchenhof, the the big Dutch display, Dutch um, flower bulb display this spring, and um, that that just blew my mind. Um, I mean, I did appreciate the trees, as I mentioned earlier, but the quality of the bulbs and it's just surrounding Kuchenhof is the bulb fields where the bulbs are grown so it's oh. it is the um, best place for growing tulips for production and you get tulips that are one and a half two times as tall and flowers is twice as big as what you, you know we see here wow. because the the weather conditions are it's sandy soil you know a good um super cold winter um they get all they want in there yeah do you have a favorite rose carding mill which is a david austin does it look like it's it's an apricot one. Mm. I, mean, I, I don't. I love orange, and I but I love other colors. But what's incredible? I love apricot too. Because yeah. a little bit of pink, a little bit yeah. of yellow orange. Yeah. But there's a group of roses that they consider the fragrance, um, like myrrh. Is that like a resin? Myrrh? Mm -hmm. I can't remember. And um, so it's perfumey, but it has this complex perfume and, um, that um, is almost maybe on more on the savory side. Mm -hmm. um, it's and that's one of the reasons I love it is the is the, is the fragrance and. With our rose garden here, we are always when you know when something is not doing well for us, roses struggle. And uh, if we if it comes time that we have to replace something, we look for ones that are disease resistant and then fragrance. And I think a lot more, the growers are really working toward more fragrance in their roses. But those two traits are connected. So that's why for so long they were breeding in disease resistance and losing the fragrance because they were selecting for genes that had the disease resistance. But now they're kind of back crossing and, and working toward um, bringing more fragrance. So do you have a favorite rose supplier? 
I love the David Austin roses. We also work with star roses mm -hmm. um, because we need a certain number of hybrid teas in our garden because that's also they're also cut for the arrangements in the house. Yeah. So um, so we'll we'll get into the hybrid teas from them. But but I love, I mean, if I had a garden, I would tend more toward the English roses like David Austin does that are yeah. just loaded with flowers. Uh, we have a an incredible great we have a group of Graham Thomas that are super healthy, but you know, they don't have any fragrance, but they seem to flower all spring and summer long. Yeah. My sister has a Graham Thomas. It's just massive. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> super healthy. Yeah. But if it just had a little, I think that they've worked and they now have a, a Graham Thomas like one that has fragrance. Um, oh. If you are enjoying these nature focused podcasts, would you please do me a favor Take a screenshot of this podcast you are listening to right now and post it on your favorite Hangout. Maybe that's Instagram. Maybe it's Facebook. This way, others can take a break from all the bad news that's out there and learn fascinating, cool things about this gorgeous world around us. And don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. It really, really makes a difference. Okay, so you live on the estate here, but do you get to have your own little garden to putter in, or is it like, no thanks, I do too much gardening during the day anyway? There's just no, I'm in, I'm in the in the house, so there's no space for me to. Um, I mean, I we have a, we have a, a staff cooperative vegetable garden that's still oh, that's behind cool. the scenes, and so um, I can work in that occasionally, but. I'm doing so much horticulture all day. I don't really <laughs> need uh, a space of my own. Someday, so, yeah. what's what's your favorite gear? Like, what gear can you not live without? Yeah. Pruners or yeah, you know. Falco shears, the Hori Hori knives, those Japanese knives that are kind of a, a long scooped blade with a saw on one side. They're great for getting out long um, weeded things. Oh. But really, a pair of pruners and some gloves for some of the bigger work and a, a good saw. Um, yeah, a good saw. is important too. Yeah, my mom when she died, I was like, "Oh, those Falco pruners, I want those. <laughs> They're still going strong." They are incredible. Okay, so you've mentioned you've been to the Dutch amazing tulip show, and then you've been to some of these amazing places in the U.S. What's your favorite European garden to visit, and what's your favorite? Do you have a top three U.S. Yeah. places? Yeah, um, European. I uh, I've only been, you know, I haven't traveled a whole lot in Europe. Um, I mean, Kukunov was incredible, but a few years ago, I got to go to the get to the Loire Valley and um, Villandry, which is is not a very impressive chateau, but it has this incredible kitchen garden that's nine quadrants all um, outlined in these tiny little espaliered fruit trees. It's kind of the fence around the, 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 the parterre that surrounds it. And then it's quadrants of, they do in the spring, lettuces and cabbages and herbs. Um, and then they change it over in summer with uh, to um, lots of pumpkins, but also um, zucchini and tomatoes and eggplants. So it's kind of this very formal treatment of of a vegetable garden and then there are all these other spaces it's it's a huge um huge garden but that was um unbelievable i, I was blown away um, by the horticulture and, and the variety of things that they do there in the states uh you know the philadelphia area is yeah um, kind have of you been to the philadelphia there. flower show i've never been to the flower show and um need to i need to get there um, because they do incredible displays yeah. there but chanticleer which is 
in Wayne, Pennsylvania, is by far my favorite garden there. I mean, Longwood is spectacular. It's yeah, I always hear about Longwood, yeah. but Chanticleer, you like Chanticleer that. is better. It's again, it's it's kind of that more approachable. It's it's maybe fifty acres. Um, Chant- uh, Longwood is uh, over a thousand acres, but Chanticleer is a newer garden. It was started, I believe, in the eighties. Um, the family, when they left it, they wanted it to become a, a pleasure garden. So. Um, it had great bones, but the things that they've added have uh, make it fun. Um, I mean, it's not whimsical. It's just well done. They have a ruin that they've created. Um, one thing that's whimsical is kind of up on the top of the high point, they have these concrete created sculpture sofa and chairs where you can sit up there um, that, that they last forever. And then they have a, a program with a woodworker who's there full time and is creating these beautiful benches and gates and fences that are around the garden. It's just, a, it's. I mean, everything is just eye candy as you walk through there. And then they they have um, plants that they, they overwinter in root cellars and there's a local church that has a space that they, they store stuff. And then they bring out these, these tremendous banana plants and agaves and and just kind of scatter them around in pennsylvania pennsylvania and by the end of uh, you know late summer everything's filled in it looks like they've just been there forever you know these huge um, tropical plants amongst all these um, annuals and things the uc berkeley botanical garden has always been um one of my favorites in the bay area um they i'm embarrassed to admit i've never been there over there yeah um any season again it has um things going on Uh, incredible collections and what else have I been that's, um, I mean, even within the, oh, the Huntington, sorry. That's the Huntington Garden down in L.A. Yeah, near yeah. Pasadena and San Marino. Unbelievable. Um, I was just there uh, in June. Um, they've created a new entry that is uh, a series of these pocket gardens as you walk along the promenade toward the, the garden. And they're just these incredible intimate spaces where you can sit. And they have umbrellas and chairs and then containers of of uh, different plants in each one it was an incredible design and this is a, a newer thing that they have there but you know they they have one of the most spectacular um succulent gardens in, in the world um that was yeah. one of the original features um yeah. and that uh you know is is where i usually get lost but i um their japanese and chinese gardens are also uh unbelievable are there any on your bucket list, like some of those the formal ones in England, like Sissinghurst and all that? Yeah. So just found out a couple months ago that we're, we've embarked on a new um, travel program. And so that's why I got to go to... Uh, oh, Filoli has. Yeah, Filoli oh. has. So that's how I got to go to Kuchenhof. And um, it, was a, it was a Dutch riverboat cruise. And next year we're doing English Gardens. And I get to go... Ooh. And I've only spent a day and a half. I think you need a journalist to go along. <laughs> and that would be me. <laughs> I have only spent a day and a half in London and have not. But the English gardens have absolutely been on my bucket list. And so the lineup includes Six Sissinghurst and Hidcote and um, uh, Gravity Manor, which was um, uh, Graham Stewart Thomas's garden. And Stourhead, you know, all the, you know, the, the gardens that are used for in movies and things like that. Yeah. Um, just the, the classic two 300-year-old um, English manor gardens are all a part of that. Plus a full day at Kew Gardens and a, gar- a day at um, Wisley um, Gardens. It's an amazing one. You know, in London, there's a very, very small museum called the Museum of Gardening History. It's really cute. It's When I was there, they had Gertrude Jekyll's journals open, and you could just look at them in her plant. It was very, very charming. I mean, it's small, yeah. but it's, you know, they have antique garden implements, and it's it's cool. Wow. I, I, I yeah. thought it was charming. To see that. That yeah. yeah. And so when visitors come to Filoli, what do you want them to notice? What do you want them to 
educate their eyes as to what we should be looking for. You know, each person comes here with their own experiences. I, I love when people are here in, in winter and um, really get to see the, the design of the garden. Um, the Of course you want to come and see all the color um, from the annual beds and from the, the woody plants and the landscape, but getting the opportunity to see the bones of the garden and see how the beds are laid out and relate to each other um, I think is is definitely a treat. You know, hopefully they're they're learning new plants for their own garden. They're they're observing the different spaces where different things are planted so that, that can help them create their own unique and beloved uh, landscape where they live. Um, or they're, um, w- one of the special things about Filoli in terms of house museums is that we still um, do flower arrangements and we do um, tropical plants in the house, which was the, yeah. the tradition of the families. You know, that's usually the... It, it is taboo in many museums. Why is that? Because insects come in with the plants, pollen falls uh. from the plants, and can damage furniture. And um, So um, fortunately, there was such a tradition of having house plants and, and flower arrangements in the house that we've been able to keep that up. But when people are in the house, they see these incredible house plants, and they can get ideas for, you oh. know, if they just live in an apartment, um, they can add something that is special um and and beautiful to mm-hmm. have a little bit of greenery in there in there who's in charge of all the uh do, is that a whole separate section of people that who do all the flower arranging and all that it it's one of our volunteer groups yeah and do uh, they have to ask you i mean where do they there are all the flowers and the and the plant material from Fololi yeah. or so yeah. then is there a certain cutting garden or can yeah. they just say hey those peonies look good and we want yeah. to grab some of those no, <laughs> they um they have a huge cutting garden there are oh my gosh i don't know how many we probably do 20 15,000 annuals um within the cutting garden plus once whole section is herbaceous peonies and um, there are a number of perennial um, plants in the cutting garden, um, so we're always replanting. And then they have access to the rose garden. You know, not not the first roses of the season, but as we get into heavy rose production, they can go through and cut roses from the rose garden. Um, so it's all all of the flowers come from the garden, and then um, we have uh, a few different foliage borders as well, mm-hmm. where we grow the the greenery for the arrangements too. Um, so, um, and they do upwards of 25 arrangements um, each week. Um, and so they're all year long. They've got arrangements going in that house, yes. right? Winter will be pretty greenery heavy or yeah. we'll, um, we'll prune camellias for them. So they have some, some flowers, but then the, the daffodils, early daffodils and paper whites will start and they'll, they can yeah. pick those and then it just gets better and better. And right now, summer, you know, mid, midsummer to midfall is um, kind of the height of all the different um, summer annuals that we have do you do orchids here we do the greenhouses are so the our main tropical greenhouse is one of the oldest in the country that has continually been used to grow plants for the house i didn't know that yeah is that the one with the big black and white tiles in no that's the garden that's the garden pavilion the garden house um this is behind the scenes oh so Uh, nobody gets to see the greenhouse um we've been opening up them up more and more and we actually did um, greenhouse tours this winter and spring so people could go on tours up there Uh, but for some of the special events we open the greenhouses up and you can just self-guide through them and up there one of the rooms in the the big greenhouse is is orchids Um, and so and we have orchids from um, Roth family the second family who lived here we still have some of their orchids and then have built on that collection oh that's cool yeah it's neat to have heritage plants yeah, and, yeah my sister has a Christmas cactus that was like from my great-grandmother yeah. and it's still going yeah, so that's, yeah that's there's cool. nothing like you know 
having something that's been around for for decades so we have the orchids that are they they're usually looking best uh, winter and spring um some will pick up in the fall and we'll bring those down and put them in the house um, for the events um, and we're actually looking at doing an orchid show next year um in the house oh, no. um, working with some of the um many orchid societies that are around us having them do some vignettes and displays and then i'm um, using our collection um maybe have some classes and an art exhibit um so. wow you're really busy so you, you've got a lot going on here <laughs> If you would like my list of can't-fail plants, the Mighty Fine Nine, plus Jim's tart recipe, and a list of our favorite gardening catalogs, be sure to head to the website, www.thisoutsidelife.com philoli, to download all the goodies. That's thisoutsidelife.com philoli. Philoli is spelled F-I-L-O-L-I. Yeah, yeah. The the orchid show is something I'm working on right now. I next week we have our annual gala. The week out, and then later the harvest gala. This you is, mean? No, this is you know gala gala, fancy party sort of a um, oh. fundraiser for for Fly oh, okay. And then the harvest event, the autumn festival, is September 22nd. And then we are doing our holidays event again, um, mid-November through um, the third week in December. Um, and there's some horticulture that's that's a part of that. So I'm kind of working on three or four different <laughs> events right now. But and that's but that's what I love. You know, I I am at a desk a fair amount, but um, there's always a reason that I should be going out in the garden and looking at the plants and getting ideas and um, evaluating so it's kind of the best of both worlds yeah. but I love the diversity of what I do yeah. um, uh, what's your favorite area in Fuller like just to be by yourself and have a moment what's your favorite space I mean it's lovely you know I'm fortunate being able to live here um, I can go out um, and, and other staff do and, and volunteers can come around too at times um, and enjoy it when there aren't aren't big crowds but um, the sunken garden you know in the, the late later afternoon when the light is coming in from the west um, sitting down by the pool or sitting under the Camperdown elm um, just being able to stroll the garden mm-hmm. when it's quiet um, but I, I do you know because it was my first section of the garden and it, and it is definitely the most special of the garden rooms the sunken garden um always is, is where i head first typically um but when the roses are in bloom or they're not garden you know it's just the thing it's this there's enough happening at all times that there's uh, a destination because um, mm-hmm. i'm wanting to see that that special thing and i come down here more this time of the year in the orchard and and look at the fruit and see what's see what's ripening I'm watching bluebirds off to the side right now who are yeah. twiddling around so um it's i'm pretty fortunate yeah it's <laughs> you're not in a cubicle all day and yeah, going through all that have you had any uh, surprising critter moments around here where you've been yeah <laughs> stunned uh, yeah a few years ago, I, it was Memorial Day, and I was coming back from running some errands. And um, as I was coming down adjacent to the garden, I saw something running around. It looked like kittens. And then um, I drove past and just stopped the car and looked back, and these two um, gray fox kits popped out of a drain pipe. 
And um, later we found, we came to discover that there were um, six of them in this, this family. Um, so a mom and six babies. And they were all around for a couple months. Gray foxes are somewhat arboreal and they would get on the walls and be walking along the walls around the perimeter of the garden. You know, not what you expect to see. Uh, they were, and they were pretty, uh, they, they became unafraid of people, um, which, was, uh, which was fun. The um, we had owl. We had a, an owl family on the north side of the garden. What kind of owls? A great horned owl. Um, and one I love of, hearing them at night. Oh, I know. And one of the the youngest of the three babes, um, I think, had um, it wasn't quite fledging yet, and had gotten down onto the bottom of the tree, and so everyone had seen it, or a lot of people had seen it, and so we started keeping our eye out, and eventually saw that there were two other babes up there, and mom was hanging out in the tree. Um, but within a week, they had moved moved on, but. I got to learn the call of the the baby, which is kind of a scream, cry sort of a thing, just letting mom know where they are so that she can come and feed them. So now I, I've heard them occasionally um, at, in early in the morning or um, after dark calling. Oh, and then I've cool. been hearing them in other places around too, which is which is fun that I got to learn their call and know that yeah. they're the great horn owl. We do have mountain lions that come through. Um, we've been seeing mountain lions scat near the garden lately. So uh, with all the deer that we have around here. I'm saying those wild turkeys, they're not going to be a problem. The too, yeah. <laughs> um, there's actually a carcass or, or feathers from one that got hit. Um, it could have been a, I haven't seen it, but people have been seeing a golden eagle around. And someone got to see a golden eagle take out a turkey earlier this spring, which was incredible. That'd be kind of a wow moment. Yeah. And then um, probably also the coyotes have gotten in here. The, the turkeys will come in here. They're, you know, they're, we're a contender for the national bird and, and yeah. all, but they're not super smart. And mm. they won't, they're very challenged by fences. And so they'll get along the fence when the rest of the, flock has gotten over the fence and just kind of pace back and forth and i think that that's when sometimes a coyote can, can sneak by and, and grab them huh. but the mountain lions with the deer uh are, have been coming around more and more uh, i mean seeing the little twin fawns in the spring is also so adorable <laughs> and there are enough families that stay near the garden and then as soon as the guests leave they're on the front lawns just grazing like cows nice. yeah that's, that's really nice. sweet What's one thing about you that surprises people, or do you have a hidden talent? Oh. Yeah, I'm a pretty good baker. And uh, actually, early on when I started working here, there's a tradition of doing birthday cakes for people's birthdays, and I kind of ran with it for a while. Um, so I've actually done some wedding cakes for people. And do you uh, use the fruit from these gardens? And I or? use the fruit. Um, what's fun about, and, and I'll pick flowers too. I mean, I think, I think that's even such a privilege to be able to just go out and you know harvest hydrangeas or roses or camellias and um so birthday cakes we'll get some flowers but even with the um wedding cakes i've done i've you know snatched a few flowers from the garden and and used those Um, so baking is is kind of my my hidden talent that not everyone knows about but um that's cool goes well with this place it does yeah especially you know this time of year with all the fruit um i made a a tart the other day with some of the few plums and peaches we have yeah so how has working in horticulture or filoli in particular influenced your views on life or what's going on lately in the world or yeah i mean definitely you know as we talked about a little bit before just i think the saddest thing is just kids these days who um aren't getting that exposure to the outside world they're um becoming 
they're, they're afraid to touch plants and they're afraid to sit on grass and you know some of that it gets instilled by their parents but it's just also not being exposed to all the, mm-hmm. the things that are around them and and uh not having pe in classes so that they're not even outside um there's just this fear about being outside and, and you know as, as we said rain and snow and things like that um things that made life fun when we were we were young so um you know however i um, i don't get many opportunities to mentor little kids and <clears throat> talk to them but you know i have six nieces and nephews and whenever i'm with them uh definitely they they love going out with me they just know that i want to go outside and um, walk in the woods and lift up logs and look for critters and um tell them what the flowers are and tell them what you know the few wild mushrooms are that i know and things like that so um, however and and other you know kids that i i do know i i try to do that with them um you know, usually they have parents who um, do have a bit of appreciation, but when occasionally kids, school groups will come through here and I'll get an opportunity to talk to them. Um, but we have a, a, a good nature education program, so it's nice that Faluli's doing that. And, and trying to, one of our goals is to bring in people from East Palo Alto and um, parts of the East Bay where kids haven't even been beyond their neighborhood, really, and um, just give them some an opportunity to see an oak tree and um, see yeah. a banana slug or a newt yeah. or... Um, butterflies, things like that. Yeah. I remember one time I was at the park with my son. It was a lot of rain puddles, and all the moms were like, no, no, don't go to the rain puddle. I was like, oh, no, you're going in the rain puddle. Like, <laughs> it's like, get dirty, get yeah. out there. And I today I see these parents at the parks, and they're all on their devices. They're not interacting with their kids. I'm like, get outside more, you know, and you know, run after a butterfly. And, it, right. yeah, I'd like to see more of that. So you guys have um, children's educational programs here where you – yeah. Yeah, um, they come out, and I can't keep track of all the different, but I know there's a, a second grade um, program, a fourth grade program, maybe a sixth grade. Part of it is working within the um, California school curricula, um, have different components that apply to some of the things, you know, California history and um, uh, nature education, the missions and things like that. So there are Native Americans. Um, so there are components that we can um, teach about here within the setting of the, the garden and the woods. And so they can come out and um, go on hikes and and see, see the plants and the animals. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Wow. This is great. You're, you're just a font of knowledge <laughs> about this place. And yeah, so thank you very much. And people should come see Faloli. People don't get to get out here in this orchard, we do have, they? We have um, orchard tours regularly. Um, oh, okay. They can do. Because I'm looking at these pears just about to drop I off know. these trees. They're gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, at some right. point when the when the orchard gets big enough, we might be able to do some kind of a U-pick thing. But for now, yeah. um, we're just trying to, yeah. <laughs> that tree looks like it's about to fall over there with all the fruit. Sad. Yeah. It's gophers. Yeah. Gophers. Oh, there <laughs> well, Jim Salyards, thank you so much for being on This Outside Life. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to This Outside Life, and thanks to our guest, Jim Salyards, the head of horticulture for Filoli Estate. If you love gardening or just being outdoors, you might be interested to know that I have a gardening book published and, just recently, a book on This Outside Life. It actually has the title of this podcast, This Outside Life. If you're interested in spiritual explorations in the outdoors, you might like This Outside Life, Finding God in the Heart of Nature, or my gardening book, Gardening Mercies. You can find them at thisoutsidelife.com forward slash new book. 
Okay, that's it for today's podcast. Be sure to download your free list of the Mighty Fine Nine Can't Fail Plants and Jim's favorite sources for bulbs, books, and gear, plus his recipe. They are all available at thisoutsidelife.com slash Philoli. Philoli is spelled F-I-L-O-L-I. And when you go to the website to see the show notes, you'll see why does it have that interesting name, Philoli. This week, don't forget to step outside and step into wonder in this outside life.